Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. It's Wednesday night and it's time for Friends in Fiction. I'm coming to you live tonight from Tybee Island, Georgia, where we just rolled in here on two wheels. It's our favorite night of the week and we hope it is for you too. You are. I'm not supposed to say that until later, but I will tell you right now that I'm Mary Kay oh. Andrews. <laughs> I am Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. I'm Kristen Harmel. And now I will tell you, in case you can't see right there on the screen, that I'm Mary Kay Andrews. This is Friends and Fiction for New York. Four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we got a twofer for you. We're welcoming Eleanor Lippman to talk about her new novel, Misdemeanor. And then Nina Diggermont will join for the after show where we'll discuss the Christie affair. So settle in, grab your drink of choice, maybe some hot chocolate considering how cold it's been in some of the country. Or maybe you're drinking a little brown liquor tonight like I am. <laughs> Or maybe you're going to grab a bowl of popcorn. So get ready for a great night. You know, Mary Kay, I'm sorry, this is a, I'm already getting off topic, but um, I said to my husband one time, like, I just don't know how Mary Kay has so much energy. Like we're on tour and I'm like half dead and exhausted and need to go to bed. And she's like doing another speaking engagement. And he was like, well, it's because she drinks bourbon and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ticket. I was like, okay. He was like, all that wine you drink just makes you tired. It's burp. Like I've already been characterized as an alcoholic before our guest comes in. No, it's like a, it's like a strength situation. She's saying you can handle your bourbon and it fuels. Yeah, yeah. It's not not like you're like sloshing around. It's just like you, you know. It it just it reinforces your, you know. I can't, I have no words tonight anyway, but <laughs> y'all, as y'all know, we're here to not only bring you thoughts about different about types bourbon. of alcoholic beverages, but also to bring you incredible authors, hot reads, and fascinating interviews, all while supporting independent booksellers. One way that you can help us support indies is to buy from them when and where you can, or to visit our own Friends in Fiction bookshop.org page, where you can find Eleanor's and Nina's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And as you know, we do not just interview authors here on Wednesday Wednesday nights. We also have a book club on a separate Facebook page called the Friends and Fiction Book Club, the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club with Le- Brenda and Lisa. This Thursday, February 9th, be sure to join them over on their Facebook page at 7.30 Eastern, which is uh, tomorrow, for their quarterly happy hour with Ron Block. So there'll be a surprise guest, there'll be book banter, there'll be book recommendations and more. And you know, Lisa and Brenda always have a great time over there. So make sure to join them for that. And then on February 20th, they're going to be hosting Sonali Dev to discuss the vibrant years. 
And of course, we also have our Writer's Block podcast that drops every Friday on every single podcast platform, no matter what you have. And on our Facebook page, on every Friday morning, we put in the announcements a link to the newest episode. For our most recent, Ron and Christy talked to Natasha Lester, Lester mm-hmm, about her newest book, The Three Lives of Alix St. Pierre. And coming this Friday, Ron and Meg will talk to Lauren Kong Jessen about her debut rom-com, Lunar Love, which has such a great cover. So listen, review, subscribe, and share with a friend if you like what you hear. Okay, ladies, let's introduce Eleanor. Eleanor is the best-selling author of 14 novels, starting with her first, Then She Found Me, published in 1990, which was later, 18 years later, turned into the film written, starring, and directed by Helen Hunt with Bette Midler, Colin Firth, and Matthew Broderick, B-list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's ever heard you of this? You steal my heart. Okay. <laughs> After graduating from Simmons College with a degree in publications, Eleanor wrote public relations pieces at Boston's public television station, WGBH. She later attended an adult ed writing course at Brandeis University, where she began writing and selling short fiction. She has taught writing at Simmons, Smith, and Hampshire Colleges, and previously held the Elizabeth Drew Chair in Creative Writing at Smith. She served on the 2006 Literature Panel for the National Endowment for the Arts, and as a fiction judge for the 2008 National Book Awards. I wonder why she didn't pick us. (laughs) Oh, well. Her essays, as witty and wise as her novels, have been published in the New York Times, Parade Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Boston Globe. Eleanor Littman lives in Manhattan and part-time in Holmes, New York, on Lake Duchess. Her newest, Misdemeanor, was released recently, and Barnes & Noble selected as their fiction pick for the month of January. It is also, we are so thrilled to announce, our pick for the Friends in Fiction Behind the Book book club over on the Fable app. If you're not a member of Fable, go to fable.com backslash Friends in Fiction to join us in reading along. What am I, am I supposed to say something else now? Yes. <laughs> Sean, can you bring Eleanor on, please? Hi, Eleanor. Eleanor, I swear to God, this is my first drink, but it is. <laughs> okay, I've got one here too. I do. Okay, great. <laughs> You're one of the girls now. Okay. <laughs> Welcome. Eleanor, thank you for that fabulous introduction and biography. Well, you did it all, unless you made it up. We didn't really double check. (laughs) We didn't do a fact check. We just we just (laughs) tested you. Yeah, but there's some specificity there, like Holmes, New York, because generally my book just says you know Hudson Valley. So very impressive. Well, a lot of us uh, underachievers are trying to catch up late in life to do our best. So. We want an A, Eleanor. We want an A. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so Eleanor's latest novel, Misdemeanor, is about Jane Morgan, a successful 30-something lawyer who commits a single, let's call it indiscretion, having sex al fresco with a very junior <laughs> member of her law firm, on the rooftop terrace of her midtown Manhattan apartment building. 
But since this is an Eleanor Lippman novel, there is so much more. <laughs> Eleanor, can you tell everybody what misdemeanor is really about? Well, it, it is about uh, someone who is under home confinement. She likes to toss around the term house arrest. Uh, but she, even though um, a lot of people might have been just, um, this might have been dismissed, but because she's an attorney, the judge, kind of a hanging judge, wanted to make an example of her and felt, you know, she should be upholding the laws of New York and the Constitution. So he gave her home confinement. And then, because again, it's a Lippman novel, that um, there's someone else in the building. She's clued in by her sympathetic doorman that he confides that there's someone else in the building wearing an ankle monitor. So she goes up there and brings um, a plate of brownies. And actually, there's a lot of cooking also in the book, a lot of, a lot of food in the book. And so that... Uh, friendship develops and I think it's um, a fairly interesting story about what his crime was is that like a big is that like a big clue yeah, big that's awesome yeah that's everything awesome. about this book is interesting oh thank you thank you <laughs> thanks uh, do you, so should I go on should I talk more about parody yeah. Yeah, I mean, and there's so much. There's so much in this book, and it's and it's a compact book. I mean, I I have I have my computer sitting on. It. <laughs> Look, it's a it's not, but she's managed to pack a lot of stuff in here. I am just in awe. That's it, awesome. you know, it has more in it than I think my most of my other books. So I'm not apologizing for that because people seem to, you know, like it a lot. Uh, but there was, you know, you, I had to have, uh, make a story out of someone who in, you know, I was careful to leave COVID out of it at my editor's advice, but there she is confined in a building. So what does one do with a character? And I took the advice years ago. I read a wonderful interview with Faye Weldon. It was in, I think, the London Times, and a friend brought it back from England, knowing I love Faye Weldon. And she said, when you're stuck, you think you're stuck, you think you're writer's block. Well, it's probably not you. It's probably the material, which is pretty funny if you're a writer, like the last right. thing you want to hear is that it's the material. But she said, you know, you probably need to add a character or characters. And I did oh that with Good Riddance. I introduced Jeremy across the hall. And in this case, I said, you know, I better introduce, she better meet somebody in the building. That's awesome. That's so great. I love, I love that. Well, your novels are known as contemporary comedies of manners or social satire and have been compared to little authors like Jane Austen and Laurie Colwin. And <laughs> that's some pretty good company to be keeping right there. But you write such real characters with very real dilemmas. But somehow by the end of the story, things have a way of working out. So I heard that a friend once told you that cheerful is your default setting and only having known you for about a half hour now. I can definitely <laughs> see how that's true. Um, so is a happy ending a foregone conclusion in an Eleanor Lippman novel? Or do sometimes you you not? I, I don't want to sound, you know, shallow and unmysterious, but kind of, yes. 
Part of it is I feel I'm the God of this world. And why would I make my characters suffer and the readers along with them? And I don't like to read a book where the character, you don't know what happened at the end. They're just staring into the abyss. Mm -hmm. So I feel that readers, um, you know, well, Shakespeare was, you know, a good role model for comedies and I don't want to say walking down the aisle because that might be a spoiler alert for misdemeanor. Nope. <laughs> well, you know, I agree. I, I love that kind of book. I mean, I love knowing that, okay, we're going on this ride, but it's going to end up in a, in a great place. And I think it gives yeah. us all hope for our future, you know, like, okay, it might be yeah. a hard day to day, but something good is coming at the end of this. You know, and you know, it sort of uh, ties in with they're almost, they are almost always, they are, wait a minute, almost always love stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure most of you, some of you and your listeners have read, loved Carol Shields. She won the Pulitzer for the Stone Diaries, but I was introduced to her with this fabulous, my one of my favorite books called The Republic of Love. So I got, I reviewed it for the New York Times, didn't know her, only time I ever asked for some extra words because I love the book so much. And we... We ended up having a conversation and I remember her saying, you know, people think that what it's less than dignified than, you know, to have books that are love stories. But, you know, if you if you're unhappy and you go to a shrink and you say, you know, I feel unloved, I'm looking for someone, does the shrink say, you know, oh, you're so uh, you're so shallow. Go home. Come back when you want to discuss. I don't know what. Um, Real things. I feel as if, you know, it's real life. Good point. Finding love, et cetera. Yeah. I always say that when I was young, the reason I read was because in the books, things worked out, right? Like when the world wasn't making sense, in the book, it made sense. Because in the end, at least the books I was reading, so we're all going to stick to cheerful being our default setting. Thank you for asking. Um, So I want to talk about Jane's twin sister, Jacqueline, who talks her into joining the world of TikTok to become a food personality. But Jane... (laughs) Jane decides that the source of her recipes, I feel like this would be you, Eleanor, would be outlandishly unappetizing fare from a distant relative's Victorian cookbook, which is so clever and makes me ask two things. Did you test any of the recipes from the real cookbook? And do you have that kind of cookbook? Both cookbooks I quoted from, if if I had, I should have brought them because it's downstairs and I don't want to go and run and get it. And it has a rubber band around it to hold it together. But it was 1896 and 1897. And because of the copyright being that old, I was able to um, quote word for word. I didn't try any of the recipes, but everyone asked, like, did you make <laughs> before you wrote that? Um, like, no, I didn't have to, but the, um, there's a story, there's a, 
plot development that starts with the bread pudding. And I've always made bread pudding and that there's some of, um, there, there's some truth in that about a guest um, in the book. He's a Muslim guest and he was being very careful about what he was eating. And in real life, this was a guest in my home. And so I cut him a little piece to see if he liked it. And I, you know, assured him, you know, it was all fine. And he ended up, he loved it so much he ended up eating half of the casserole. So uh-huh. I never forgot that. And um, so that worked its way in. So yes to the bread pudding, but nothing else didn't make any <laughs> other bad things. What about poulet? What about poulet au jane? Is there a poulet au jane? No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that was just her sister is showing off because her sister is trying to sell her to Perry as a possible caterer because Jane, the, the, um, you know, the, the arrested lawyer needs to make money and her sister is always plotting to figure out ways. And Perry, she finds out, orders in every single night. So something gets worked out and she delivers meals and it's not supposed to be a date, a dinner party. It's just drop the food off. But again, you know, it's an Eleanor Lippman novel. <laughs> That's awesome. I want to be in your head during plotting for like mm-hmm. 10 minutes. Patty, this might make you happy. I, I only go sort of one sentence at a time. So the plotting is just maybe this, I'll try this. If I, if I write a couple of pages and I realize I've gone down a blind alley or a bad alley, then I go back. Um, Some of the best advice I ever got was someone I was interviewing fellow faculty members at Bennington college, some right. Um, workshop and Carol Edgarian said, "Go back to the truest line." Oh, wow. so you know you. So it's like, ah, eh, this stinks. I'm going in the wrong direction. Something. So I do that, and I do it all the time. You know, go back, cross out, cross out, eliminate. Um, go back to the truest line. Oh, I love that, and I love the added character. So go back to the truest line. Bring in a new character and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Eleanor, I read that a librarian once called you the patron saint of second chances, which I love because I love to write a book, uh, a second chance at love book. Would you talk to us about how your own experience with midlife second chances and how that's affected your fiction? Well, that's sweet. See, they know everything about me. Uh, yes, there okay. are no secrets on the internet. We're on friends and fiction, modern love. Um, yes. Well, my um, my husband, my son's father. We were married for thirty four years when he died, and I actually always try to mention he died of frontotemporal dementia, which. Everyone, there's always someone out there. It's very rare. And there's always someone out there that sort of likes to hear this or finds comfort. Anyway, so that was Bob. And Bob died 13 years ago. And I think you're talking the second chance you might be referring to is me on Match.com. Well, I was writing a book, The View from Penthouse B. 
and my character was widowed and I put her on match, but I'd never done that. So I thought, well, you know, for some verisimilitude. So I did it too. And I wasn't, you know, not liking it at all. And then one more. Oh, so, oh, and I quit. So I was quitting. Okay, Cupid, J-Day, everything that I was on. And I was about to quit Match.com. And then I remembered that I was using sentences, you know, little come-ons. You know, they were all the same. Like, hey, pretty lady. That's what they all say. That's what they all say for those of you who haven't been on Match.com. Um, um, so one morning I decided, oh, yeah, I better not quit. And I clicked on, for the first time in a long time, morning matches. And I clicked on someone who was geographically appropriate. And then I read, you know, favorite places, favorite um, activities, favorite meals, everything. And that last book read was one of mine. Oh, <gasps> yeah. It was one of mine. Yeah. So I, I was so like, astonished, but also sort of embarrassed. Like here I was on match.com. So I worked up the courage. Were you just, under your real name? You were under your no, name. Okay. No, no, no. But I wrote to, so you can, you know, send messages. And all I wrote, the name of the book that he'd finished was um, The Family Man. Yes, The Family Man. So I just wrote, Thank you. That was lovely to see. And of course, I met him and um, we've been together for 10 years now. But um, he said he had to go to his bookshelf to compare the book jacket photo with the photo on Match.com. And, um, you know, and that's, um, yeah. So that's Jonathan, who has helped me with all the art in this book. There's a lot of Carrie's handler right and then there's you know some other i enjoy doing that hanging up art with her father and stuff well like you know so, um i wouldn't have known any of this if you hadn't read written um the such a delightful modern love column in the new york times and i think oh. you can see all of us going oh the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, story. story i've ever heard yeah, I, I would hear people would I meet people. I remember going to a, my late my not my late my ex editor's daughter's bat mitzvah, and someone I didn't know say that she heard. Oh, and Jonathan was with me that she'd heard how we met, and I didn't know this woman, and said she'd been at, at some other event, and so, someone at the table knew this story. So it is. Um, yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's a good one, and I think it beats the odds of last book read. I wrote a love piece that last book read. Most of the men wrote, you know, I don't read books. It's like technical journals or the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, <laughs> and he had read yours. That's amazing. What and you he know, read my favorite of yours. So I gotta, I have to meet this man eventually. <laughs> <laughs> What a great story in the lead up to Valentine's Day too, right? That's it's yeah. just around the corner. I love that. Oh, thank you. So, Eleanor, you managed to smash expectations of middle-aged women when you have Jane reach out to the only other ankle monitor resident of the building, Perry, as you mentioned, to ask if he would enjoy some company. And then you really mess with our minds when you have her agree to um, a little arrangement with Perry. I don't know how much of a spoiler we want to give, but I love this. So I'm wondering if you knew the direction that relationship would take when you started writing the novel, which Definitely. also... Wait, sorry, go ahead. No, definitely not. 
But I'm sorry, Kristen, go on. I was going to say, it just, in my mind, leads to a broader question because you were talking about how you write as you go and, and, you know, you backtrack if things aren't working and, you know, you kind of start over from the truest sentence or whatever. How much of the novel do you know at the beginning? Do you know how some of it's going to come together or not at all? I don't know. I don't know anything. I usually start with you know, first line, and maybe if I'm lucky, a character. But in this book, I had this whole other chapter that started it. And it was, you know, it was kind of a dippy idea. It was that sort of food blogging for her sister, the dermatologist. And then suddenly at the end of that chapter, I write, not planning, I write, you well, this would have worked out. This would have, this was a good idea because I was under house arrest. Hadn't planned that, but then I thought, oh, you know, I like, I, I, I could work with that. I like that house arrest thing. And then I had to figure out what the crime was. And you made it such a delicious crime. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I was at a book group last night. There was a judge there and she (laughs) said that it was a little, the sentence was a little harsh, but it worked, but it was, but it worked okay for the book. It worked okay for the book. She was fine with it. (laughs) I know. I wish we had time. I would read the opening to this book because I don't think if you read this, that you cannot keep going. Um, and I promised, I, you know, I posted on my social media today that I was going to promise not to fangirl, but obviously that's gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you talk about um, the experience? Um, you know, you wrote your first published novel, right? Was And Then I Found Her? Then She Found Me. Then and Then She, she Found Me. I'm sorry. Would yeah. you talk about the experience of all those years later having it made into a movie and with such a slacker of a cast? <laughs> Right. Oh, it was optioned before the book came out. And I knew, you know, books got made into movies, you know, uh, Godfather and Mary Poppins. Those started <laughs> off with books. But the day I got the phone call from the agent who did the movie stuff at the agency and said that um, Sigourney Weaver loved this and there were other people interested in it. And it, 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 that was when that, happened. I picked my son up at school. He was in first grade. And I said, um, Sigourney Weaver wants to make a movie out of Mummy's book. Ghostbusters was out at the time. So he knew who Sigourney Weaver was. So 18 years later, he's working. He's grown up and he's actually working at the William Morris Agency. And he was the one that clued me into that, you know, Helen Hunt, when she won the Oscar, she read the book. And she loved the book and she was sort of got it away from Sigourney Weaver. So that happened. And I actually, I love the movie. It's very, it's quite different from the book. It still has the title, Then She Found Me. But I was, I was, I mean, who wouldn't be happy with the movie finally being made? And, um, you know, at the premiere, which was very conveniently, you know, sort of the movie theater was up Broadway and the reception afterwards was down the street from my apartment. But my son um, came and my late husband was still alive. And I brought my son over to meet Helen. I called her Helen. And um, Ben put his arm around me and said to Helen, um, I hope you know you made my mother's decade. (laughs) 
But it took a long time. I really just want to know if Colin Firth was hot in person. That's all I really want to know. And nice. Was he nice? He was the only one I didn't meet. I met Matthew. He was lovely. He was eating sushi and he jumped out of his chair when they said this is Eleanor. It was based on this book. And lovely, lovely Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, And I had this moment alone with her where I told her I'd written up the Boston Globe and wanted me to guess about the ending of Sex in the City and that I guessed that we would find out Big's last name. And she said, nobody guessed that. She said, you know, (laughs) it was so adorable. And I said, well, I didn't guess his name. I only guessed we'd find out his name. But not Colin Firth, but um, Jeffrey Lyons, the movie, had interviewed him in London, and Colin Firth, and this is very self-regarding, but Cal- Colin Firth said, I heard she's America's Jane Austen. Oh, oh, oh you need to God. tell everybody when you're married what your husband's last name was. Austin, right. Oh. I know. I didn't that. I know. Oh, no. It's not wow. creepy of me to know, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. no. It's not creepy. Oh it's not her bio, y'all. I did not literally. <laughs> we called <laughs> everyone that you've ever been associated with in your life. So creepy, Mary Kay. <laughs> I did not Google search at all. <laughs> you guys didn't know the name of your first boyfriend. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that the surprise guest we have coming on next? No, actually, uh, Bette Midler's coming on, isn't she? I only met her. I met her very quickly at I went I went to a shoot and I met her and and, um, she only said one thing to me, which was great earrings. That's all she said. (laughs) I take that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Eleanor, you've taught college level writing classes for years, and in fact, we have a comment here from a Viewer saying, Eleanor, you were one of, her name's Susan Baker, saying, Eleanor, you were one of my sister's favorite Smith College professors. Um, so we wanted to ask you, mm-hmm. Eleanor, first, what's the most common mistake you see beginning writers make? And second, what's your best writing tip? You know, I would say um, that some... Uh, it's something I see a lot. I and it wasn't just necessarily my writers, but I once judged a short story, a, a collection length short story contest. I think it was for AAUP. I think anyway. And almost every story started with a description of the sky or the weather or the flora, the fauna. And Elmore Leonard agrees with me. He wrote. I mean, not me personally, but he wrote. Um, um, writers on writing for the New York Times about starting with the weather. And I've never quite understood it because I find it a little boring and maybe, you know, I'm not outdoorsy enough or planty and florally enough, but I do, it does. um, Yeah. So I would say that I once, and I always ask, you know, other writers, why do I think people do that? And someone gave me a good answer once and thought that, you know, it just might be easy. It's sort of an easy way to sort of let yourself in that started that distance. But having said that, there's some great writing. I remember Elizabeth Strout's first book, 
there was a lot of many chapters beginning with you know flora and fauna so it's that's kind of a personal prejudice and um as far as the best advice when i started at brandeis adult ed then i think the best advice i ever got was from a my wonderful teacher his name with art was Arthur Edelstein, and he said, sometimes the best way to start, no, the best, the best way to revise, no, wait, 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 the best way to revise is to start something new. Oh. You mean just to get your head out of what you're currently working on? It, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because you keep working at it and working at it and you don't get it right. Pulling at it, tugging at it. Yeah. And I do, I start, I so often throw out, I've thrown out as much as 125 pages and I, and I never, I always try never to sort of grieve those pages and to say, it's fine. It was just work. It was maybe worth it. Um, It wasn't, you know, it was a lost cause, but don't regret it because it's better to start over. So, yes. So the best form of this is it. The best form of revision is can be to start something new. Yeah. Wow. I had an editor who, you know, when you talk about the weather and all that, my editor once really pinpointed and he said, you just, you're doing a lot of throat clearing here and you're, yeah. you're telling, you're telling yourself the story, but nobody needs to know that except you. So let's cut that out. <laughs> a good point throat clearing yeah well another piece of advice that i follow it's um um wait i forget his name but it's based well whoever i'm thinking of based it on um bob goldman goldman the screenwriter which is to get into a scene as late as possible and out of the scene as early as possible yeah. oh that's good yep it is that's good advice. Good. That's really good. You talked about El, uh, Elmore Leonard. My favorite advice of his is somebody asked him how he how he explained his success. I mean, so many of his books were made to movies. And he said, oh, it's easy. I just um, leave out the part readers skip Cut over. Out. Yes. <laughs> yeah. In that same, uh, you can still find it online. Right. Yeah. You can find his rules. The rules. Yeah. I don't agree with all of them, but I agree with some of them. Yeah. I loved that one. Yeah. Well, my favorite thing is planty. Meg just put it in the chat too. We're all gonna for planty. Planty. Better adjective than planty. I'm like mentally reviewing the beginning of all of my books, trying to make sure that I did not start any with like the weather or I know. (laughs) You know, it is far so good. Those rules work until somebody does something that sort of breaks the rule, right? Yeah. Yep. And opens yeah. with a gorgeous scene of a, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just started today the audiobook of Rebecca by Daphne Murray. Yeah. I dreamt last night. First chapter. Yes, last night I dreamed. And the whole first chapter is describing the grounds of women. Yes. And on and on. So I thought, well, there's another theory. First of all, you know, describing dreams I'm always thinking is not a great idea and then throw in the you know the 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 landscape and but what a great book yeah it's one of my favorites I don't except when you read it years and years decades after you first read it you get a little indignant that the narrator's name is her name we never know her name it still bothers me (laughs) 
We know his first wife's name, but we don't, and we know Maxime's name. But we not the narrator. Yeah. We never know the, the current Mrs. Yeah, I'm sure that was her device on purpose. I'm sure it was. Okay. We, got, we, we could go on and on. All right. You guys, all of you listening, we have so much more to talk about with Eleanor and Nina de Gramont, who is going to be joining us for the after show. But first, we have some quick announcements. So I wanted to tell you all about something very dear to my heart. The four of us will be joining more than 50 authors on Tuesday, March 7th for a virtual event hosted by Adventures by the Book to raise money for cancer research and mammograms for the uninsured. You can see the full list of authors and RSVP at adventuresbythebook.com. The only cost of admission, you guys listen to this, it's free. The only cost of admission is a commitment to schedule your mammogram or encourage a loved one to do so. You know, that matters to me. You know that my breast cancer was only found because I went in for a mammogram. So on March 7th, it also happens to be the paperback release date of Christie's The Wedding Veil. So this event is the perfect place to pick it up because 20% of each book sold will go to Susan G. Komen. Oh, but going to be amazing. We're really there for you. We're there. Oh, we're there to you. remind people to get their mammograms. Forget it's about me. To remind people to get their mammograms. Yes. That's, That's so great. You. That's so great, Christine. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So speaking of paperback releases, this is the week that the paperback of Patty's Once Upon a Wardrobe hits stores. So if you haven't read it yet, I mean, this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous new cover. Even if you have already read it, you should probably get another copy just so you can have that cover like out and about in your house. I want one. It's like the, it, it would go with every room of my house, Patty. So thank you for that new <laughs> cover. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, make sure you pick it up in the next few days. Um, as I mentioned, fabulous new package. And you can learn all about it on Patty's Facebook page, Instagram feed, website, and newsletter. <clears throat> And on a more somber note, I'm probably not the best person to do this, this week, um, tomorrow in fact, marks the one-year anniversary of the death of our beloved Mary Kay's incredible daughter, Katie. So as you recall, Katie died last February <clears throat> after suffering complications from a particularly <clears throat> bad bout of COVID. And we wanna take this time to remind you of an amazing, charity named in Katie's honor. Katie was the most giving, biggest heart, and also like more life force than any young woman I've known. And she's always trying to help people. And the fine folks at Helping Mamas was a cause near and dear to Katie's heart and where she often gave up her time and her resources. And they are collecting funds to purchase car seats and pack and plays for mothers in need in the Atlanta area. And we will share information on the Friends and Fiction Facebook page on how to donate to the Katie Trocheck Able Safe Sleep and Ride Program, if you're so inclined. If you're not in a position to give, there are myriad ways to perform acts of kindness in Katie's honor. We will also share the suggested list of good deeds that Katie's friends and family came up with last March to mark what would have been her 40th birthday. And we love you, Kathy. And Kathy. You, Kathy. Mary I can't Kate. believe it's been a year. I can't believe it's been a year. Me neither. Okay. All right. All right. Back, to, back to fun stuff. <laughs> All back right. to fun books, because Katie loved fun books. 
Yes, she, she did. did. She just loved yeah. fun in general. Fun everything. Fun yeah. anything. Yeah. And Kathy, she left such a great legacy behind. I think so many of us have been inspired to to give, to do good deeds, to donate, to she yeah. Her, her opening our heart open, I think, opened a lot of people's hearts, including ours. Thank you. All right, Eleanor, before we let you go, let's talk about what you have coming up. Do you have any events that we can find you at on the road? And in general, where can our community find you and connect with you online? Thank you. Um, the uh, My website is just my name, eleanorlipman.com. I have, um, I'm doing something called... Um, Book Mania in Stewart, Florida, in oh, the, so end, the end of March 31st, April 1st, and then something in Indianapolis that everybody knows about. It's the charity event. Uh, it's, it, it'll book, be, book and author luncheon? It's not the book and author luncheon. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It'll be on Instagram and it'll be on your website. Too. I should have yeah. it, but it'll be on my website. And then I was invited. I'm giving a keynote address at the Santa Barbara's Santa Barbara Writers Conference. So I'll be there on June um, Juneteenth. Oh, lovely! Oh, awesome. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eleanor, um, we have one last question for you, and this is one of our favorites. Um, what were the values around reading and writing in your family when you were growing up? Oh, I love that. Avid readers, um, both my parents read all the time. I mean, my father was a salesman and he would sort of make his rounds as fast as he could and then come home and lie on the living room couch and read. And oh, wow. he, awesome. yeah, he was. He was an English major in college and graduated in 1929. You know what that means. Yeah, not a great year to graduate from college, <laughs> English major. But red, 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 and um, would, you know, it was a very big deal going to the library every weekend and going to the secondhand bookstore. And my mother used to love mysteries. She read, you know, sort of quiet British um, mysteries by women. And Nagao March, who was one of her favorites, who's actually Australian or New Zealand, but British Commonwealth. Right. And, oh, but reading was very, oh, and I wasn't allowed to watch television on school nights. So that contributed as well to. I didn't let my kids write to watch television on school nights either. I wasn't allowed to watch television on school nights. Mm-mm. I was well, allowed I, to watch Full House on Tuesdays and that was it. <laughs> yeah. well, I um, reread my favorite books compulsively, compulsively. Um, yeah, my f- all-time favorite book as a kid and then even into my teenage years was Daddy Longlegs by Jean Webster, an oh, epistolary, an orphan gets sent to college by a kind trustee still in print. Um, yeah, read it and read it and read it and read it. I think I had a movie too, wasn't it? I'm wasn't sorry, it was was oh, an bad, bad movie? Bad movie. A bad movie. Don't judge a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like ballet. You know, it was just a little Audrey Hepburn dancing. No, no, no relation to my orphaned orphan. Yeah. What is the thing with orphan books? Why do we so love yeah. orphan books? I know, I know. The little princess. She was remember lived in the attic. The boxcar yeah. kids. Yeah. Annie. Annie. Yeah. Annie, my I, my children love the boxcar kids, and I read them 
I read them to them and my son was a special and he was not a reader. And, uh, for years we wouldn't let him, we wouldn't get a dog because we didn't have a fenced yard and I was allergic. And finally he said to me one day, he was very indignant. He said, the boxcar kids are orphans and they have a dog. <laughs> Shame on you, mom. Very yeah. indignant. Those kids had a dog and they had no That's hilarious. Boxcar kids are orphans. <laughs> I, I, you know, how am I doing here? I have to get off. Don't don't you you have to throw me off soon? But I think it has to do with, especially if you're living in a if you're a young girl reading and you live in a safe family, then that's kind of living on the edge to be an adventure. Adventure joints, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was the same thing with um, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, yeah. Andy loved Huckleberry Finn, and I'm just like, really? You not you don't really like to read? What appeals? What about Huckleberry appeals to you? And he said, Mom, are you kidding me? You got two kids on a raft on the Mississippi River. They're fishing and stealing shit. What could be better? <laughs> Nothing better than that. Mom. And he was cussing when he was like seven. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been so All much. right. We can do this for kids. <laughs> okay. Uh, Thank you so much, Ellie, for spending oh, time with us. Oh, Thank oh, you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I could, I, I, I could do this every week. I could. Well, oh. we <laughs> with you. We could too. We're gonna bring in Nina because we she's got lots. Yes, of yes, 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 yes. So much luck with misdemeanor. Everybody, go buy the book. Oh, thank you, thanks, thank Eleanor. Thanks, thank Eleanor. Thanks for having me. Good night. Well, we cannot wait to talk to Nina, but we don't just love talking about books. We also love to write them. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes we do. Most days. And all four of us have new books out this year, and your TBR pile is getting even bigger. So if you want to be one of the first to get signed first editions, we have a new Friends in Fiction first edition subscription available from Indie Bookstore Booktown in Manasquan, New Jersey. And this subscription features signed Hardback first editions from each of us and a Friends in Fiction kitchen towel that says dinner can wait. It's time for Friends in Fiction. You can order them right now at booktown.com. That's booktown with an E at the end. And remember that this year we have live in-person events. You don't have to just look at us in squares on the mm -hmm. computer. Um, and you can always find out about them on our individual websites and in the Friends and Fiction newsletter and on the website. But we'll be in Columbus, Ohio on April 26th. And they finally have a link up. So go check it out. And then in Charleston, South Carolina at Buxton Books on May 1st to celebrate the Secret Book of Flora Lee. And that ticketing link is already live on the Buxton Books website and filling up fast. Don't have FOMO. Join us. <laughs> and then on June 6th, we'll be in Huntsville, Alabama for the launch of Kristen's The Paris Daughter. And then we'll be in Tampa at Oxford Exchange in July for my launch of the Summer of Songbirds. I'm not sure. I don't think the link's up for that one yet. And then we'll have another you know, event we'll in, in July. July what? July. Um, okay, July. Okay. 20th. Okay. 20th. July 20th. Um, and then, uh, and we'll have another event in the fall for Mary Kay's 2023 Bright Lights Big Christmas. And maybe one more that hopefully we'll be telling you about soon. So more info to come, plenty of opportunities to see us no matter where you live. And make sure that you're signed up for our Friends in Fiction newsletter and our individual newsletters so that you don't miss any of these great tour dates coming up. 
All right. Well, everybody, we'll see you in a minute for the after show at, uh, with Nina DeGramont. But don't forget, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. What are you doing? Who's dropping things? Not me. Was it me? I might have pulled something. Might have been me. Sorry. <laughs> Usually it's me. <laughs> it actually might have been you, and you didn't know. Mark <laughs> Wicker can do that to a girl. I'm not going to fight with you about it. Could be me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Brown makes you get a fight about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm going to have some crackers for dinner. Woo! <laughs> All of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. So stick around. We'll see you in a few seconds. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back. <laughs> uh, I hope the fun's, we're just going to keep rolling along with the fun tonight, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's introduce Nina. Nina, also known as Marina Gessner, is the acclaimed author of several novels, including Meet Me at the River, Every Little Thing in the World, Gossip of the Starlings, and The Last September. Her novel, The Distance from Me to You, was recently optioned for a movie, yay, but tonight we're here to talk about her historical novel, The Christie Affair, which was a Reese's Book Club pick and an instant New York Times bestseller in hardcover. The Christie Affair is just out in paperback. I just love that cover. So Nina lives in coastal North Carolina with her husband, writer David Gessner. She teaches at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and she is almost always in the company of her two dogs, Missy and Isabel. Sean, will you bring Nina in? Hi. Hi, Nina. Nina, we're practically neighbors. I didn't even know that until right now. Where do you, do you live in Wilmington? I'm in Beaufort. Just I, I, have a, I have a feeling that my mother and I met you in the airport once and my mother <laughs> immediately accosted you and you told her that you were a writer and she tried to, you know, you should have coffee. <laughs> you should <laughs> really? I was like, mom, stop it. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, I don't remember. So that's good. <laughs> okay. good. You. That's awesome. I have to tell you that I've been, I listened to that whole Eleanor Lippman interview and I've been like frantically scribbling down notes and books and that was so wonderful. I she was know. great. Yeah. 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 She's just so lovely. She oh threw out a couple of gems there, didn't she? Yeah. Yes. I, I have go back to the truest line here. The best way to Thank revise you. is to start something new. Yeah. I was just like desperately grabbing for things to scribble. I know what all I was doing. Down on. I know. I'm going to have to go back and, and watch the uh, the episode afterwards. Yeah. Nina, could you send us your notes? Do you mind? <laughs> no, I'll photograph them. some of the other shows and just kind of give us we your need, yes. notes. Yeah, we need I'm to. always looking for other jobs. <laughs> I have to say, I um I was thinking about the um the weather thing, and I had I once wrote um a novel like a novelization for Marvel Comics. And I sent in the book and the editor sent it back and it was like 50 pages shorter. And she said, <laughs> I took out all the mooning about. So that's kind of become like my husband's and my shorthand for like the, the uninteresting part is mooning about. I think we all have, I think we all have code phrases from our editors that, you know, um, t- basically telling us 
cut out the throat clearing and get to the story. Yes. Yeah. I love throat clearing too. That's great. It's not original. It's, to me. it's boring, like a code word for, for throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Nina, we want to talk about you and we want to talk about this book. And um, we were all there in um, at the Savannah Book Festival and got to hear you talk oh. about this. We were all in the back row cheering you on because the book had just come out and it was so fun to hear you tell the backstory, but not everybody listening was there. So we're going to talk about it. There have been several movies made and books written about Agatha Christie's never explained 11 day disappearance in 1926, but your book explores an entirely new look at the life of famed mystery writer and her husband, Archie. In fact, Agatha Christie isn't even the protagonist of the story. So how did you decide to flip the narrative like this and tell us about kind of, you told about it in Savannah too, the origin that made you say, I'm going to tell this from a different point of view. I think it was the, so Agatha Christie went missing in 1926, December of 1926. Um, She disappeared on December 3rd. She was found 11 days later at a spa hotel in Harrogate in Yorkshire. Um, Oh no, I should have cleaned my office up a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when she was discovered, she had um, checked herself into the hotel using the last name of Nancy Neal, who was her husband's mistress. So to me, that just that like that was the detail that begged to be made into a novel. Um, that sort of pathological, really vulnerable um, attachment and connection between sort of an you know a, a wife and this uninvited guest in her life. Um, and you know, I, I knew that um, there had been other imaginings of it. Um, the one that I had seen, or the one that I watched after I got the idea to do this, was Agatha. Um, it's a movie with Dustin Hoffman and Vanessa Redgrave, and it's sort of um, the, the the idea behind it, it. There's sort of a murder mystery behind it, but it really um, is sort of more what you'd expect with the women being at each other's throats. And I just thought, oh, it'd be really interesting to sort of try to humanize um, and make sympathetic, you know, somebody who's wrecking a beloved icon's marriage um, and come into it that way. Oh, that's fascinating. You know, Nina, it's interesting hearing you talk about what sort of drew you to writing this novel, but I'm curious, were you a reader of Agatha Christie before this? Were you a big mystery reader? Was this um, a a genre you felt passionate about? No, um, I I love movie mysteries um, and television mysteries. I've never been a big reader of mysteries and I never read anything by Agatha Christie until I started researching the book. So, I mean, I guess the the question I often get now is, are you a big fan of Agatha Christie's? And in the present tense, yes, I absolutely am. I became a huge fan of hers while I was researching the book. But in the past tense, I really got to know her on this project, which I think was really a good thing because she wasn't super precious to me. You know, I mean, I, I tried once to write a novel about Emily Dickinson and it was a colossal failure just because I was so attached to her as this icon and this you know, all the stories and the person I wanted her to be. So I think it was good to not have that with Agatha Christie. Well, I think especially since you were writing from the viewpoint of this woman who tried to steal her husband away, right? Like that would be very hard to do if you were, you know, you had to make her sympathetic. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, you know, it's not a spoiler to say that Nano Day, the protagonist, wouldn't normally be a likable character. I mean, she sets out to insert herself into the into Agatha and Archie's life and then to seduce and eventually marry him. So how did you make how did you manage to make her backstory so sympathetic to your readers? And you've already, I mean, you just mentioned that you had to say, you know, Agatha, I'm not, I'm not telling your story. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was giving her, give, you know, she, as you read the book, you discover she has this very tragic backstory. Um, she suffered a lot. She um, has this plan um, that in her mind is a way of rectifying wrongs that have been done to her in the past. But I also had to make decisions about what her attitude toward Agatha and the marriage would be. Um, I think it was really important that she like Agatha and feel yeah. badly about what she was doing. You know, she states as a narrator that she didn't want to hurt her and she's sorry that she's causing her pain. Um, I also made her um, want to be a writer. That was her, you know, girlish aspiration that never got fulfilled. So yeah. I tried to sort of draw these parallels that would hopefully make her you know, less appalling to readers, at least as the story moves on. Well, it makes the story so interesting too, because, you know, it's, it's definitely a harder road, right? To, to take the unsympathetic character and try to make someone understand why they would do the things they do. And then when we ultimately are kind of on her team, it's like, wait, really? And it's, you know, it's, anyway, it's very cool. Um, We're all just, human and falling in love yeah. and you know yeah yeah. Exactly. Right. yeah and I mean that's a story that we all have such um an immediate visceral reaction to but you know in the history of the world it doesn't make sense that every mistress has been the devil and every wife has been yeah. the angel yeah, that's a good point mm. oh, definitely not <laughs> I think the other woman's story is always an interesting one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so tell us about um, the Magdalene laundries, the unwed mothers' homes in Ireland. And did these actually exist? They actually existed. Um, you know, what was interesting is that the, the Magdalene laundries were actually a place that women went after they had the baby out of wedlock. Um, there's a there's a portion of this novel takes place in a mother and baby home, which is where women went when they were actually pregnant. Um, the mother and baby homes were... Um, church-run so-called charities where, you know, fallen women, women who had been, um, had children out of wedlock or who had been molested. In some cases, there were women who grew up in orphanages and were too pretty or flirting too much, would end up in these laundries um, and essentially be incarcerated and, you know, made to work um, grueling labor. Um, and, you know, the, the, the last one closed in something like 1996. Isn't so this is our incredibly wow. recent um, history. But um, where Nan is is a mother and baby home. Um, and I did a lot of research. I mean, some of the things that went on there, I honestly had to soften for the novel because they were just too terrible. Um, so, I mean, I know that there, there are a lot of Baroque goings on um, in the book, um, but... They're all, almost everything is taken from actual accounts of things that went on in the mother and baby homes. Wow. That's incredible. 
Yeah. Um, and they were run by, a lot of them were run by um, convents, right? The Magdalene yep. laundries? Yes. They were wow. run by nuns. Yes. I remember there was a huge piece in the New York Times, oh gosh, maybe three or four years ago, five years ago, um, where they had found the burial ground for a lot of the babies that they said disappeared or were given, you know, to other families and never were. It's, they were very real. And it's so, I know they're still trying to make amends over there. Yeah. There's um, a wonderful, um, there's something called the names project, which is yeah. trying to find the names of all the women who are incarcerated in these places and the names of all the babies who died. I mean, just appalling practices. Um, Things like they would, you know, leave the babies, you know, newborn infants unattended all night long and pin them to the cribs. Um, just things that, you know, if you've ever taken care of a baby, it just doesn't sound like a real thing that oh. somebody would do. But so, of course, the mortality rate was incredible. And one of the things that one of the books I read to research the book is called A Light in the Window by a woman named June Golding. Um, and she was a midwife in the early 60s um, at a mother and baby home. Um, and while she was a midwife there, the mortality rate, um, it, it was the lowest mortality rate in any mother and baby home um, because she was very, very devoted to the girls um, and took really great care of them. Well, it also is what helps us get to know Nan. Like if that's where you came from. Right. And that was a real thing. Well, Nina, tell us what you're working on next. And can um, you? You know, I can't just because <laughs> I'm I'm sort of I, I take the advice of if you know, the best way to rewrite is to start something new a little bit too seriously. <laughs> and my sort of method is to write 100 pages, decide it's not working, put it aside, start something new. I mean, that's what I did with the Christie Affair. I wrote 100 pages. I had a panic of like, I can't do this. I'm American. <laughs> this is too much research. I'm not worthy. Um, put it aside, started something new, and then went back to it. So, okay. so that's sort of where I am is juggling oh, different projects so and deciding between them. That's really cool. Well, how would we tell our community to find you? Where can they connect with you online? Um, I am on um, Instagram and Twitter under Nina DeGramont. I'm on Facebook. Um, okay. I'm going to be in Long Beach, California this weekend at the Literary Women's Festival. Nice. Um, going to be in Southern Pines next week. So, Look with Kimberly. We love that. We love that. Country Bookshop. Oh, my gosh. Wonderful. So great. Yeah, Country Bookshop. If you live in the North Carolina Piedmont, right? Would you call that the Piedmont, Nina? I believe so. Is that, I'm looking at Christy. Does that sound right? Yeah. Is it, is it uh, like I don't know. It's kind of the coastal plains, actually. It's, it's, it's horse country. You drive yeah, yeah. by lots of beautiful horses. It's beautiful, whatever it is. I used yeah. to go to a lot of horses. I used That's to go where to I was born. Oh, oh yeah. There's in Southern great, Pines? And yeah, there's a nonprofit uh, writer, uh, retreat house for the arts, uh, Weymouth, in, yeah. in Southern Pines. And um, my writer friends and I in North Carolina used to go there for writer retreats. And I wrote a lot of, lot of yeah. words on a lot of books at Weymouth. Up there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, what a wonderful place to grow up. It's a great town. Oh, I didn't grow up there, but I went there on writer's retreats. <laughs> okay, everybody. Thank you so much. That is it for us tonight. Tune in next Wednesday when we will be joined by JT Ellison, Patty's dear friend, with It's One of Us, a thriller chiller. 
and Jill Centopola with Stars in Italian Sky. And everybody have a great night. Thank you so Good much. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you for having Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.